This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We're talking Melbourne Fringe on the program this week and there's a range of artists and art forms and a range of festival hubs and venues in the the Fringe this year. One of the festival hubs is a bit of a circus hub and that's the Melbourne Spiegel Tent uh, in Collingwood. It's uh, owned by Circus Oz where they present a range of uh, independent artists and some of their own programs throughout the year as well. One of the shows that is on at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent is The Loneliest Number and joining us to talk all about it is uh, its creator and performer, Hannah Kryle. Hannah, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, my very great pleasure. So to begin with, tell us a little bit about yourself and your circus background. Are you one of those kind of people who's been a circus performer for life, gone, come up through the f- Flying Fruit Fly Circus, gone to NICA, or, or are you, have you come to circus differently? I've very much done the, uh, the uh, Australian circus school path. So um, I actually grew up in Brisbane. I was uh, a member of Flipside youth circus there uh, from the very beginning, did my first circus classes in a park under a tree. Uh, eventually we graduated to a building and uh, and they've gone up and up since then. And, and yeah, I moved to Melbourne uh, about Ten, nine years ago to go to NICA. Um, yeah. NICA being the National Institute of Circus Arts, for those people who aren't familiar with it. Brisbane's got a really strong circus culture. I mean, it's got Circa as a, as a, a figurehead company, a leading company. You mentioned Flipside. There's also uh, Volcano Women's Circus. Uh, there's Cassis and there's other independent circus artists as well. Why do you think circus is so embedded in the, the artistic culture of Brisbane? It's, it's really interesting. I think that um, certainly Melbourne and Brisbane are Australia's two biggest circus cities and I feel like it can't be uh, it can't be a coincidence that that's where Circa and Circus Oz are based respectively. I think that um, I think that they set up their own kind of ecosystem. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah, they do in a way. And I think that I think one a lot of artists gravitate towards those cities because they want to be on the radar, you know, of these big companies that that provide work for a lot of artists which is you know hard to do in the circus world um and i think also there's just you know there's spaces there there are people there there are people who've who've written music for circus there are people who've done lighting design for circus there's a lot of support for circus artists in those two cities just because of all of the people that gravitate around those two companies so yeah i feel like that that that's probably one of the main reasons now speaking of support for circus artists i wanted to talk now specifically about your own show the loneliest number um which is a solo show so there's in some ways there's not a lot of support for you in this show because it's the spotlight is on you for the duration of the show, so uh, which a presents some physical ch- uh, challenges. If you sprain a wrist, you can't, or or, uh, or worse, um, in most circus shows, you, somebody can replace Pick up the you. Slack. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here it's all about you, and also it means there's no time for you to step off stage, catch your breath, change your costume, glass yes, of water, whatever. In the show itself, yes, there's there's actually two costume changes in the show, um, which are a lot of fun to get through they happen mostly on stage uh yes it is there's i did my first performance of it last night actually it was my first performance of it ever it's a brand new uh it's a brand new beast for me i've always been an ensemble performer up until now so this is sort of a solo show about going solo um and and i think that in a lot of ways uh with like you say like costume changes and and getting completely exhausted um, 
by about three quarters of the way through the show and all of that. I think that it actually, I don't feel as though I need to hide that in this show because because I'm very, this show is about going solo and I'm very upfront about the challenges involved with that. Um, one of them being, you know, uh, well, I guess I have to clean all the props off the stage now because nobody's going to do that for me. So I'll just get on with that and I'll get changed while I'm doing it and I'll, and I'll explain what's going on as it's happening. Um, and yeah. what, in terms of then creating a solo show about being a solo performer who's more used to being an ensemble member, what, is, what t- kind of challenge does that present in terms of the actual circus arts themselves? Because if you're, for example, used to being the bass in a three high, uh, suddenly you're there on your own, being your own base and, and with nobody vaulting onto your shoulders or and then standing on top of them, for example. So has it forced you to uh, rethink your own personal approach to circus as an art form and the tricks that are involved with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I put a lot of energy into developing. I've kind of spent the last couple of years really developing um, my clowning skills, which is something that I'm really passionate about um, and is just ridiculously difficult to try and get better at um and so there's there's certainly a lot of clowning involved um and then yeah I mean my my specialties uh when I trained at at NICA um we picked two main specialties to focus on for the three years and I did duo trapeze which is obviously a duo routine with another with another woman and then the other act that I did was German wheel which is um, basically a human-sized hamster wheel requires a lot of space and neither of those things are in this show so this is all stuff that has been developed since then but I, um, I really believe quite strongly that um, that everyone who's a successful artist is constantly an emerging artist in that you have to continue to be emerging in order to uh, continue to get better at things. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on clowning. There's a bunch of new skills in there as well. Circus, you know, acrobatic skills that I have learned and trained up over the past eighteen months to put into this show. Um, but yeah, it's certainly it, yeah, it's certainly a, a challenge and a journey. Yeah, the show that we're talking about is the loneliest number and is on at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, thirty five Johnson Street, Collingwood, uh, and this uh, it. Uh, is, second preview is tonight. Correct. And then the season is running from the 23rd, so from uh, Friday through until the 2nd of October, 10.30pm at the Spiegel Tent. So what I would recommend is uh, book to see a bunch of shows, see two or three shows back-to-back at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent. Absolutely. Which you can easily do. Um, what some of the other shows on? Uh, can you give us a quick plug? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can come and see Cassis, Restrung. They're on uh, doing... Uh, a redevelopment of their very popular show Knee Deep with live music which is absolutely stunning um, and then you can see Undertone as well uh, after that and you can just stay for the whole night three three back to back, there's a lovely little bar there, it's a beautiful space come and check it out. Uh, it's right next door to the tote if you've not been before. So, <laughs> Does that present challenges in terms of sound bleed? Like, uh, Are you doing a, a subtle quiet solo performance and suddenly some raucous rock and roll band kicks off next door? You know, to be honest I I haven't actually noticed I mean I did my first preview last night and I think I was probably I was so nervous I was so this is you know I mean a lot of people are afraid of public speaking this is my first 
ever solo show. So I, I wouldn't have noticed even if it had happened last night, but I really don't think that it is. I think they're pretty on top of it. They've, they've been doing shows in that space uh, for a while now, over a year now. So uh, they kind of, they know the challenges, they know what they're up against and they're, they're pretty on top of it down there. So. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting to Hannah Cryle about her show, The Loneliest Number, and indeed her career and circus. And I wanted to broaden the conversation for a moment, Hannah. Um, at the Melbourne Festival a couple of years ago, they did a big focus on circus, and there was some uh, international circus and some local circus. And one of the things I've noticed when I see, because I, I love circus, uh, contemporary circus as an art form, so I see a lot of it, and I see a lot of Australian work, and I also try to see as much international work as I come to town. And I'm really conscious of... Uh, how progressive Australian circus is in terms of gender roles. Um, when I see um, uh, international circus, whether it's Canadian or what have you, often um, women are still the flyers, they're still decorative, the men are doing the big bulky stuff, uh, and whereas in Australian circus it's like women are the base in a, th- in a three high, as we've said before, women are, being, uh, are throwing themselves around and throwing other people around. Do you notice that kind of gender kind of difference in circus as well? Absolutely. And I think it's shifted a lot over the last, really just over the last sort of five or 10 years. Um, and it's become um, certainly, you know, I- I'm a base. I've always been a base. I started, I started catching doubles trapeze when I was 11. <laughs> so I-, I don't enjoy flying. I've always preferred to be the lifter. Um, and certainly when I was, when I was quite young, I, I never understood the point. I was watching, watched a lot of, uh, circus strong women acts and Australian and otherwise. And, uh, and to me, it felt like a lot of them, the point of the act was that the lifter was a woman, you know, it was, I'm so strong because I'm a girl. I'm so strong because I'm a girl. But if I was a man, you would expect that I could lift people this way. But because I'm a woman, you should be impressed. And that has certainly changed, particularly in Australian circus, that it's the strong people do the lifting, the, you know, the people who are aerially aware and graceful and light (laughs) are the ones that get lifted and thrown. And that that is not determined by gender. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm really proud of about Australian circus. It's, it's certainly something that I feel like we're, we're leading the way, but it's, um, it's catching on around the world, which is great. Good to hear that the rest of the world is catching up with the, the circus work we're creating here. And we, and Australia really does create world class circus. It's every year for the last couple of years. I look at the program for the Edinburgh Fringe and, uh, Australian circus acts are front and centre and really getting kind of great acclaim as well. So it's not just my personal bias but looking at the international media and their coverage of Australian circus as well. We really do create bloody good circus work here. Yeah, we do. And it's really it's um, it's um really a privilege to be a part of the Australian circus industry. We're a relatively small industry and we're an incredibly tight-knit industry. Um, you know, they say everyone knows everyone. I feel like that that's, that's probably actually true within the Australian circus industry. Um, and everyone's also incredibly supportive of each other. There's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of looking out for each other that goes along. And so when you do go overseas and you start a conversation with, I'm an Australian circus artist, that actually means something um, in places like Edinburgh um, and, and Canada and, and the likes. That, that means something and that's, and that's because, you know, because we have such a strong industry here and because we all represent each other um, because we are so, you know, tight, which is great. If you want to see uh, Hannah's solo show, The Loneliest Number, a solo circus performance about being a solo performer, it's on at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Uh, you can 
get uh, see a preview tonight, so cheaper tickets. Uh, and then the season kicks off from Friday night, uh, the 23rd, through until the 2nd of October, 10.30pm each night. Um, tickets to the preview are 15 bucks. Uh, full price tickets, twenty bucks, eighteen dollars concession, uh, and you can book by going to the Melbourne Fringe website, melbournefringe.com.au, to see the loneliest number, one of several excellent circus shows on in the festival. I say excellent; I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure it will be mm. bloody good. Thank so, you. Uh, yeah, Hannah, thanks heaps for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. This is a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Joining us, uh, who are uh, in the studio, we have uh, Bridget Gallagher, who's perform- whose show is Saving Spiders. Uh, and uh, I'm an arachnophobe, so I'm already getting shivers <laughs> down my spine. Bridget, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. And also performing uh, and pre- well, presenting work, I should say, at Northcote Town Hall, uh, a show called Blind Spot. Uh, and its creator, Daniel uh, Santangeli, uh, Santangeli, joins us in the studio as well. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very well, very well, and thank you for coming in. And now, your shows are quite different. They are indeed, Mm. yes. So, Daniel, yours is an immersive participatory work that's taken over the main hall of Northcote Town Hall, which is a huge space for a show that features an audience of two. Yeah, it's actually kind of, it's actually great. Um, you know, the um, it offers a really nice contrast and there's an opportunity to kind of get lost as an audience member. I mean, there's only two audience members at a time. So the first half of the work starts at Northcote Town Hall in the main hall, which is most of the time in complete darkness. Um, and then the second half of the work is outdoors. Um, so then it shifts quite radically from there. And I'll just point out that I had no idea at any point in time, because I went the show having basically done no research and not hearing much about it. So I didn't know that the second half took place outdoors. So I was absolutely startled and delighted as well, I have to say. Yeah, I think it's better as a surprise, but it's fun to talk about as well. Yeah, well, look, it would be a real challenge to to have you on the show and not talk about any of the details about it in case we're we're being very cautious of spoilers. And Saving Spiders, Bridget, you're the director of this work. I am indeed, yeah. Um, how are we describing it? Contemporary theatre, performance? Uh, I'd say it's contemporary theatre. It's a new play, brand new work. Um, and so we've been drafting, redrafting, redrafting, as you do. And um, we've come to a brand new play. Now, it's very exciting. Written by Leela Rogers as director. Yes. What kind of input do you have in, in that rewriting process? Um, quite a lot in this case. Um, I ended up dramaturging the work with Leela, the writer. And so we, over the course of um, kind of intensively over about two or three weeks, we did, I think, about 11 or 12 rewrites together so i mean leela wrote it but we would get to we would do table reads with the actors and then we'd kind of see what worked what didn't work and i would end up kind of with a big list of you know fix-its and changes and and we'd work like together on that and then leela would offer lots of new things and it was a that kind of a process so because often that uh director slash dramaturg and playwright relationship particularly with a new play is very kind of uh there's an enormous amount of collaboration that goes yeah, on there. Yeah. yeah, Dan, for your work, talk to us about how the process of creating and making it has come about. Because 
it's not exactly scripted in the way that a traditional theatre piece is. Yeah, I mean, this work um, came about um, when I discovered the autobiography of um, Edward John Eastwood, who was one of the um, two men convicted of uh, a, a kidnapping in the 1970s in Victoria. Um, and um, I came across the book. It's really poorly written, but offers a really interesting insight into the psyche of this man um, and details of the, um, of the kidnapping and his time in Pentridge Prison as well. And so um, used that book as the starting point and drew on that um, and worked really closely with uh, Roslyn Hall, who's an amazing sound designer and sound artist, um, and worked with her to recreate moments from the book. Um, and essentially the work now is, in a sense, sort of like walking into a podcast, um, but there are performers who also help lead you through that as well. Now, one of the things that I found fascinating about the work, having experienced it, and I say experienced because, it, it, because it's such an immersive work, and it's an interactive work and it requires you to not just watch but to engage actively. So it's not the kind of show... If, if you're a little bit shy and hesitant and, and you would just prefer to sit and watch, maybe Blind Spot is not the show for you. But <laughs> one of the things that I found fascinating about it was because... I already knew so much about the history of the events that are documented. I grew up in 1970s country Victoria at a, pri- at a very small primary school. So the uh, the kidnapping uh, that unfolds, I was like, oh, I know all about this. This mm. is a bit scary. Um, and the the guy, the prisoner whose biography you've just mentioned, wasn't just in Pentridge. He was in Jika Jika, which is the the maximum security kind of mm. where all the the absolute hard cases and damaged people were incarcerated and they were damaged in turn by incarceration and by the warders. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, um, Eastwood spent his roommate in prison was um, Chopper Reed um, and you know, um, there are descriptions in his book that didn't make it into the work that are about his time with Chopper Reed, um, which are quite hilarious actually, um, if they weren't terrifying. But yeah, um, that's one of the things that we also sort of touch on in the work as well is about how um, atrocious our prison system is and we have many hangovers from um, the 70s which are then hangovers from the convict era um, and we yeah we in many ways have a prison system that doesn't work and so part of this work is also looking at the idea of what motivates us as a society to put people into captivity um, both as a both as, as a society and putting people into prison, but also what motivates individuals to take people captive and kidnap them for, for personal gain. So that's, in a way, the, the central question of the work. So exploring that kind of psychological motive, what about the psychological motives of the characters in Saving Spiders, which in some ways is uh, a domestic drama? It is, yeah. It's a very naturalistic play for about 10 or 15 minutes, and there's um, three people in their 30s who just, you know, live in their kind of crappy share house and go out and drink a lot of beers and have some pingers and sleep and go to work and you know um but it's a man and a woman who are in a sexual relationship and then another woman who's like the best friend and they're so close with each other that it's this kind of like potentially completely unsustainable relationship between these three people who are like completely do like every single thing with each other and it's kind of uh, an event takes place that kind of fractures that relationship and then another event takes place that you find out about at the very end, so I won't tell you. Um, But that um, kind of uh, fractures the mind of our lead character and so theatrically we've kind of made a little bit of a David Lynch film within a naturalistic play to represent her mind 
melting away. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah, so come and see it. <laughs> have you seen the work? No, I haven't seen the work. I've seen nothing at Fringe, I, I, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, well, you've got a fairly complicated show to present, which is being staged how many times a day? Uh, they're uh, five to nine times a day. Um, so there's uh, 78 sessions throughout the entirety of Fringe, so only 150 six people get Jesus. to experience the work. Um, and it requires a lot of babysitting as well, which is yeah. why I haven't seen anything. That's <laughs> fair enough. Um, but I, it intrigues me that in some ways there are parallels between the works, even though they're very, very different works. This notion of a psychological fracturing and a psychological unravelling of characters mm. is a, uh, in some ways a central motif in both both works. Yeah, and the kind of the, the prison of the mind, <laughs> for yeah. lack of a better term. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, um, and I think playing with form, we're both playing with form in unique ways as well. And I think that's really important to do that so that we can offer um, a genuine experience of what it's like to be to, in, to be inside some of these characters. Mm. And, I, and, um, and I think that sort of traditional narrative of, you know, going from A to B to C to, to F uh, doesn't work anymore. Um, and I, yeah, and I think that's what's quite exciting about it is that we're um, trying to find metaphors that work formalistically. Why do you think that straightforward progressive narrative doesn't work anymore? Is it because we're also used to television in which you can have flashbacks and flashbacks within flashbacks and jump forwards and... Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's that, um, you know, cliche of the, um, that a lot of theatre practitioners talk about of like the gymnastic mind, that our minds jump around from one form to another constantly. Um, and more and more um, in society, we jump between forms all the time from iPhone to radio to, you know, normal face-to-face conversation. So um, I think our brains are wired to, to jump around. And would you agree? Is that one of the reasons for why you and the the team with uh, Saving Spiders are fracturing the narrative? Yeah, I suppose because it's a new work as well. I mean, I found it very um, interesting and satisfying to make, you know, the first half of the play a very ABCD kind of narrative and then just break it all up in the second part. And it's a bit of an experiment, really. It's been great fun. To have both the forms in one has what, been great fun. What's the audience response been like? Have people, cause it's like been good. Because having the, I guess, having the narrative rug pulled out from underneath people's feet like that yeah. might be quite confusing. And, or- um, no, people have really gone with it. I think they're kind of relieved. I think they're kind of like happy that I think by the time, by the point that it happens in the play, everyone's kind of ready for it to, to change up. So and that's been deliberate. <laughs> so yeah, I think people have been enjoying it. Cool. Now both shows, Blind Spot and Saving Spiders, are on at the Northcote Town Hall, uh, where Darabin Arts, the team there, have programmed uh, a, a raft of shows. What are some of the other shows that are on? Sammy J yeah. um, is on in Studio One. Yeah. And um, next week, uh, well, I, my show finishes on Saturday, and I think there's someone else in my little room out the back. Taking I'm over your sure space. Who it is, my little space. Um, but I'm not sure who's in there, actually. I'm a terrible person. Uh, well, I can, <laughs> I, look, people can uh, jump on online and find out the details. But, yeah, so uh, Saving Spiders is on this week. So uh, there's performances tonight, Friday night and Saturday night. Yes. Uh, and Blind Spot is running through until uh, Saturday the 1st of October. I, I'm told it's completely booked out. Is that the case? Yeah, it's, it's all, all sold out earlier this week. Ah, so, so uh, kind of like, I'm sorry anybody who's been tantalised in intrigued, but you've missed out. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully it'll have another life so more people can see it. I hope it will. And also, people cancel from time to time as well. So it's probably worth keeping an eye on the Fringe website just to see if tickets pop up. because, Or even just sometimes rocking up and hanging around. Because I know another work that's that's on a Fringe completely booked out in which um, uh, it's for an audience of three in the backseat of a car that then drives around. Uh, People book tickets and don't turn up. So if you're hanging around at the right time, uh, 
and, and taking maybe turn up for the very first session on a, on a weekend, for example, or the very last session on a weeknight. Yeah, you've got a chance of, of getting into sold out shows that as well. Sounds like mm. a plan. I would, yeah, I would definitely vouch for that plan. Yeah. Mm. Now, in terms of fringe as a whole, why is it important for you guys to actually present work in fringe? Why fringe as opposed to at any other time of the year? Um, I think Fringe is really wonderful and important for, um, well, both of our shows are very different, but, um, you know, it really gives a, a forum for both of our shows to exist. So there's a lot of brand new work. I know there's a lot of people making brand new stuff and kind of experimenting and trying out new writing, new forms um, and, you know, taking big risks that is within a festival where everyone's doing that. So it's a really great kind of support. I think it's terrific. Yeah, and I also think, you know, uh, uh, Darabin Arts is, is incredibly supportive. You know, they put some money behind the work. Um, they take a real risk on presenting yeah, these fantastic. new works. And I think that's so important. So we have an opportunity to see what it's like to have an audience inside our work. Um, and that, and you learn so much from that so that the next time you come back to that work, you can go, oh, actually, that doesn't work. But if we tweak that, this will work. And, um, you know, we want our works to have a long life and Fringe and Darabin Arts Speak Easy are both great opportunities to have that first outing. If you want to get along and see uh, either Blindspot or Saving Spiders, uh, you can jump online at uh, www.darabinarts.com.au. Uh, you can call 94819500, uh, and that uh, applies to any of the shows that are on at North Cat- Northcote Town Hall. And you can find out more information about shows also at melbournefringe.com.au. The Fringe is running through until the 2nd of October. Any other shows you'd like to give a shout-out to or a plug to that you've heard good things about that people should see? Um, I saw Andre tonight which was hilarious and wonderful so i highly recommend that and i'm looking forward to seeing apologue which is a spoon eyes um comedy show that's on in brunswick starts next week excellent women very very funny ladies and your show will be over by then so you can actually go out and see more work free as a bird yeah Yeah. um i will also uh uh second the the plug for andre tonight i saw it on sunday oh great um, and yeah really really enjoyed it it is great great and a very special guest star yes of which we will say no more (laughs) yes i want to know know. (laughs) i'll tell you once i turn the microphones off (laughs) um um, any shows you want to give a shout out Uh, to or a plug to i I would plug Gemma cantini's awesome ocean party um it's a work that's existed before and um, I've worked with Gemma on numerous, numerous occasions as a performer, um, and she would be in blind spot if she wasn't making an incredible work herself for Fringe. Okay, if you want to go uh, know more about Orsham. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> awesome Ocean Party. Uh, that is on at the Butterfly Club downstairs, so in the smaller intimate space at the Butterfly Club. Uh, and that finishes this Sunday, the 25th of October at 5.30pm. So you should get along to that and check that out. I love a 5.30 show, I've got to say. You can finish work at 5, shut down the computer, stroll straight to the Butterfly Club if you work in the city anyway. Uh, grab yourself a drink and see a show. How yep. very civilised. And there's time for dinner afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more information at melbournefringe.com.au. The festival itself running through until the 2nd of October. Go out there and see more work. Uh, Blind Spot and Saving Spiders both on at Northcote Town Hall. Check out darabinarts.com.au for more info. Daniel and Bridget, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
now we're going to continue the conversation about shows at Melbourne Fringe. We've been looking at different performance idioms uh, on the show today. So we've had circus, we've had interactive, immersive theatre, we've had comedy, we've had more traditional theatre. Now we're going to talk live art. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by uh, performer Bronwyn Batten, fresh from uh, adventures at the Edinburgh Fringe, back to Melbourne, resting for a week and jumping into the Melbourne Fringe. Bron, welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Richard, for having me. It was. I think I landed last Friday, so I'm nearly over my jet lag. I'm still a bit confused. The life of a performer (laughs) is a strange and wonderful thing. Yes. Now... What For those people listening who aren't familiar with the term, how do you describe live art I as a genre? You, as you were talking then, I, I, I thought, I bet she's going to ask me that I'm, question. I'm so predictable as um, an interviewer. <laughs> no. uh, live art's a bit of a tricky one. Um, it's basically a performance that could be defined, that can't be defined by any of those other sort of categorizational uh, terms. Like my show has, has put, uh, comedy in it and it has interactive performance. It, uh, it has immersive elements. It has sort of more traditional theatrical conventions. But um, live art is sort of uh, a, a combination of all of those elements, I think, is yeah. how I would describe it. And it's also an art form in which the audience's uh, presence is often vital to is the work the key. being made. Yeah, so it's incredibly um, participatory, which yeah. can be confronting for, for some audiences. And but particularly participatory, uh, <laughs> this work, which uh, is called On Stage Dating. That's right. In which you go on a date on stage each night, an actual date, uh, yes. with an audience watching and, like... If you go out on a date, people are watching anyway. You can mm. you, you can go to a cafe I, or a restaurant sometimes and spot the couple on the awkward first date. I kind of feel like that's my uh, superpower now. After doing all this research, I'm in restaurants going, oh, there, there they are, the Tinder date or the OkCupid date. It's very, oh, you're right, it's very obvious when you spot them. <laughs> what are the obvious signs? Um, sort of extreme awkwardness. I think, but also heightened nervousness and a kind of hopefulness. I, they, you know, I really like watching them. Like, oh, come on, I'm cheering for you. You can do it. Happiness. Make that connection. <laughs> um, it must be strange then to play out that kind of nervousness and heightened anticipation and anxiousness and uh, and interest on stage each night. Um, I was thinking about this the other night and, and no matter, because I did this show for the Festival of Live Art in March, so I have, um, it's the second season of this work, and I was thinking that um, the research that I did, I went on about 50 dates over over the course of a year as sort of um, research for the show, and I was thinking that, that those dates are still much more awkward than anything that's happened on stage because at least on stage you have an audience to kind of witness the weirdness, whereas when you're on your own in a cafe, you're sort of trying to look for the audience really to sort of sort of go, what is actually going on? Uh, what I, I what is happening? The last date I went on, I was just looking for an exit fairly quickly. Yes. So it was one of those dates where somebody had paired me up with somebody going, oh, oh, Richard, you're gay and single. My friend is gay and single. You'll have so much in common. Yeah. And it's kind of like, what, apart from where we like to put our dicks? Right. And like, <laughs> we have nothing in common. It was yes. it was excruciating. Yeah, so, it can yeah. be. Yeah. Um, how real are these dates that you're having on stage? Because this is art. So to what degree is there artifice? Are you actually seriously hoping that you will find a connection with a special someone on stage in the middle of like maybe performance 10 of the the season you're doing at Fringe, there will actually be a real spark and real chemistry or is this just for fun? 
Oh, you know, you go, it would make a good story for the grandkids, wouldn't it? Um, so uh, if that happened, that would be really nice. But um, I've, I've sort of also worked out that that time we have together on stage is basically the course of our relationship and that that the amount of intimacy that you can you can pursue and sort of genuinely find with a stranger in that space. Like we're talking about quite personal things and making uh, making ourselves quite vulnerable to each other and that's that's really quite beautiful for, for us to experience together but also for the audience to witness. So I, there are layers of realness and I had a great volunteer on the first night and also last night my volunteer was great but on the first night um, he really played along and he really... Um, sort of bought into this premise and that's you know of course that's really fun to play with someone who is who is um entering into that that um not fantasy but that um creative imaginative space with you is really nice plus he was a firefighter so (laughs) so you know the the ladies in the audience were doing a bit of bit of swooning and i'm sure one or two of the boys yes yes (laughs) now uh, a couple of years ago, I think half the world, or maybe it was even only last year, the world seemed to get really excited about an, I think an article that was in the New York Times or something, um, uh, an artificial way to fall in love, well, a series of questions that you could ask and that required you to sit and look into a stranger's eyes and to talk and ask this series of questions, gradually getting more and more intimate and re- revealing. Well, it, it's funny you should mention that because that study is what is based the structure of the show is based around that study. So we answer um, questions from that study progressively becoming more intimate at the uh, towards the end of the show. So, yeah, that was... that was um, the, the, the spine of the show is that questionnaire yeah. that, we, that we answer. So there you go. Excellent. <laughs> well, cause I, as soon as I heard about that study, I was like... I, I must admit one of my first thoughts was... Well, my very first thought was, who can I find to ask these questions with? My second thought was, I wonder how long it's going to take someone to turn this into a show. Uh, so, ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> so how to, to what degree has onstage dating as a, as a show, as an idea, evolved since its initial outing at the Festival of Live Art back in March? Um, I think... Yeah, finding those, because it's all improvised. So the structure is there and the questions are there, but of course the different participants make the show really different. So finding the edges of of uh, that improv and seeing what I can actually get people to do on stage, I think at the end, you know, because they end up in quite a physically and emotionally vulnerable spot. And I think they sort of come off stage and, and go, how did I get from sitting in an audience to, to being in a ridiculous costume sort of not wearing very many clothes so it's it's really um fun to kind of push that participation which is you know the key kind of live art element of of i can't do the show without a participant and um if they play along then that's going to make the show all the more better for yeah. the audience for me. And, and how do you find do you just ask for a volunteer each night or are people do people have to pre-register their interests um or? i had been chatting to people on tinder and okcupid um, and have endeavoured to find uh, participants, you know, f- from real life. But there's also the chance for the audience to um, register their interest through a questionnaire that they get coming into the show. So so if you come along to the show, there's a chance you and I might go on a little date. <laughs> uh, the show is called On Stage Dating and is happening uh, 
at the Fringe Hub Arts House in North Melbourne in the underground space. That's right. Uh, and is on uh, through until the 1st of October, no show on Monday the 26th at 8pm and shows are on Sunday at 7pm. That's right. Uh, $20 concession, $24 full price and you can book at melbournefringe.com.au. Now, Bron, this notion of... Uh, of the liveness of your work mm. and the participatory nature of the performance from a perfor- uh, uh, and sharing the stage with someone has become a bit of a thread uh, for you in your work. Because the show you were doing in Edinburgh, you your dad uh, was going to perform with you over in Edinburgh and unfortunately was ill and couldn't yes. travel. Yes, um, So in Edinburgh, you were asking for stand-in fathers <laughs> to perform in your work. That's right. I had a, a, a plethora of wonderful Scottish men who played my dad and they were... They were. I was so overwhelmed with the generosity because obviously my dad was um, unwell, and it was very soon before the festival. And I was thinking, what am I? What am I going to do? I need. I need a dad. And I put um, the call out, and some artists in Scotland helped me. And these men just came forward, and they didn't know me, and they didn't know the work, and they were like, "Yeah, sure, I'll I'll give it a go." And and on the days they weren't in the show because there were six across the season, so they did sort of a few shows each. Um, they would call me and text me and ask how the show was going and sort of bring their own families and bring their own children along and um, they were so I'm, I'm eternally grateful to these Glaswegians mainly yeah. um, who came and saved the day because we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Why is it so important for you as a performer to have the support and the help of audience members in making your work? Because they're always infinitely more interesting than you. <laughs> and um, I'm just really interested in people. And so when you get sort of audience members or non-performers up, that their instincts are so genuine and real that their responses are inevitably better than than any joke or any kind of contrived thing. And, and last night in particular, I had these... Uh, it was two girls, so um, it was the first date and then sort of someone else took over throughout the show and and they were so wonderful and so genuine and the audience just loved them because they entered into it really genuinely and really all I had to do was sort of keep the show going and provide the forum for them to be wonderful people so um, I think that's that's what I'm interested in and that's what this show really does on stage dating is like here are these great people that you could go on a date with that you could meet and um, aren't human beings wonderful except when they're not. <laughs> We've seen some examples this week of human beings not being wonderful. Yes, um, yes. Uh, our sister station, Joy 94.9. I uh, read that this morning. Yep, had a, uh, a bomb scare. <sighs> and this is, uh, I, this is I'm assuming, a, a direct response to the, the rhetoric, rhetoric around the plebiscite and the anger yeah. uh, towards some... Uh, more conservative elements in society towards the notion of uh, equal marriage. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a queer radio station has had a bomb threat. There's, so it, it's nice to know that um, when opinion polls are telling us that 50% of Australians want to ban Muslim, Muslim immigration, immigration, this yeah. is, I, I've discovered from a poll of only a 1,000 people, so I don't think it's necessarily particularly representative yeah. of, I hope, the country as a whole. But when people are being miserable bastards in some yeah. parts of the world. It's really nice to, to be reassured in your show, in On Stage <laughs> Dating, that people can be generous, they can be giving, and yeah. they can just participate in a work with a stranger that makes the world stranger and richer and more wonderful. Well, I, I sort of tend to say that I don't think people need much more help being more miserable. So I, you know, always try to, to, to help people be a bit less miserable. That's That's... 
that's my uh, mission. I don't know. It's it, I've just had one coffee today. I'm not sure what, what's going on, but that's that's my uh, that's my raison d'être, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, well, you've made me less miserable over the years by dressing as a blue whale and and, and, and flapping about on stage uh, and in many other works as well. Uh, on stage dating is uh, Bron Batten's show at the Melbourne Fringe. It's a live art piece which you can catch uh, uh, at 8 p.m. each night, except Sundays when it's on. It's actually sold out tonight. Um, so you can't come tonight, sorry. So come tomorrow night <laughs> at 8 o'clock or any other night thereafter right. except uh, Sunday the 25th of September. Um, uh, and it's uh, at the Arts House North Melbourne Town Hall on the corner of Errol and Queensbury Street. More information at melbournefringe.com.au. Bron Batten, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au